Welcome. This is The Frame Shift. I'm your host, Adam Green, and today I'm speaking with Nancy King. Nancy King is a professor in both the Department of Social Sciences and Health Policy in the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, and she's the co-director of the Center for Bioethics, Health, and Society and the Graduate Program in Bioethics at Wake Forest University. Nancy, thanks for talking. I'm happy to be here, Adam. Nancy's written a really wonderful review article in North Carolina Law Review called Human Gene Editing Research is the Future Here Yet? And I wanted to talk to her about this because I think it highlights some of the pertinent regulatory and ethical issues that we're going to be wrestling with for, for the coming decades in the world of biotechnology. First, let, let's just start with some definitions. As you say in the paper, gene editing has captured the public's imagination. Can we define gene editing briefly? Well, I'll do my best not being a scientist. What everybody's heard of is CRISPR, but there are actually some much older forms of gene editing. And the idea is that you use biotechnological tools to go into the genome and cut open DNA at a place where there's a deleterious mutation. And you can use gene editing to cut out that mutation. And then you can do one of two things. You can let the double helix just reseal itself without putting in any replacement, or you can insert a replacement there. And that's what CRISPR does. It's what zinc finger nucleases, which have been around for a while, do. It's what talons actually does. And that makes it more precise and more accurate, potentially, than old-style gene transfer, which now should probably be called gene addition. The old form that people had originally called gene therapy was really gene addition, where you identify somebody who has a deleterious mutation, and you put together a whole lot of copies of a gene without the mutation, and you kind of flood the body with those new mutations. So you're adding good genes, and I hate to say good or bad, it's kind of a problem, but you're adding correct or corrected genes that you hope are going to, and you have methods of doing this, overcome the effect of the deleterious mutation. So those are the two techniques both are still in use. CRISPR is, and, and other forms of gene editing, are just really starting to make their way into human studies. And then there's this new thing, which I'm not sure I fully understand, called prime editing, which appears to be a method of being even more highly targeted and precise changes in one of the base pairs that makes up the double helix for every strand of DNA. So we keep finding things that we think are going to be perfect, and every one maybe is a little bit more efficient than the last, but as soon as we start using something new, we discover that it isn't as perfect as we hoped it was, and that's just kind of the way science and medicine has always developed. We think we're there, and then we find out that we're not, and then we regroup a little bit, and we kind of inch closer. Just to reiterate, you talked about two broad categories of biotechnology. Gene editing, which is editing the, the genetic code, maybe in the germline phase, for example, in the context of IVF, which has not yet been done except in one, one instance, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about for sure. And then you talk about gene therapy, which came about in the 90s, which is inserting, I guess you could call them adaptive genes into somatic cells. 
and you also touched upon another form of gene editing that uh, David Liu and his group developed. They developed base editing, I think, in 2016 and prime editing within the past month or two. A really big paper came out that made a splash. But you write in your paper that these sort of issues that we've been wrestling with have been simmering for nearly 50 years. So Watson and Crick and Franklin wrote about the double helix in 53, and since then there's just been this accelerating progression of technologies as you talk about, both lower in cost, uh, more effective, less unintended effects. So what, what, what do we do about that? So in the, the 70s, there's this conference, the Silomar Conference on Recombinant DNA Technology, which you talk about. So could you tell us what the conference was, what motivated it, what, what did it accomplish? Okay, so this is a really good example of a moratorium on a technology development until more is known, and that was one that was undertaken by the scientists themselves at the Asilomar Conference. Because gene transfer was so new and it was being used in ways that everybody had some concerns about or it was proposed to be used in some ways that people had concerns about, not knowing, for instance, the environmental effects of using some what was called recombinant DNA, because recombinant DNA means you, the idea that it could recombine in nature and become, quote-unquote, wild-type DNA. So nobody knew what it was. This was well before people were thinking about doing it in humans. They were planning to do it in agriculture and so forth. And so recognizing that it made sense to slow down until more was known, the scientific community undertook a moratorium. And as a result of that, the federal government began to set up mechanisms to review recombinant DNA research that was planned for humans, which didn't happen until 1990. So there was a great deal of time to actually step back and make sure that more was understood about the technology and the risks of affecting the environment and the risks to individuals. So it was kind of, you know, there's this thing called the precautionary principle, which is talked about outside the United States more often than talked being talked about in the United States because it requires before something actually gets released into the environment, let's make sure that it's safe, which is a very hard thing to do 100%. And in the U.S., we've kind of resisted being that careful because it makes things slower than people actually want. But every time a moratorium is discussed or people are saying, slow down a little bit, let's wait until we know more, it's a kind of a version of the precautionary principle. And that helps to counter some of the effects of the, the headlines you always see in the media, because one of the things that happens is everybody gets excited about the possibility of progress. And that's what causes these ups and downs of, well, this is really, really going to work. And then we find out some reasons for caution. And that kind of bumping back and forth, I think we could smooth out the road a little bit if we were a little bit more careful and circumspect and thorough about looking at these new technologies from the beginning. You touch on the precautionary principle. It brings to mind this concept called Chesterton's Fence. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was this conservative writer. He had this principle. He said, if, if you come upon a fence somewhere, don't just immediately take it down or hop over it because you don't know the, the reason why it's there. 
analogously, if you're dealing with an immensely complex system like the, the human genetic code, maybe you just shouldn't go about poking around and perturbing this complex system because you don't know what sort of effects it could have. In your paper, you write about post Asilomar. There have been two overarching policy questions, so I just want to frame uh, wh where we're headed. So you said one issue was, should we focus only on safety and efficacy, or, or should we also look at metaphysical matters, like the integrity of genetic inheritance? And the second big overarching policy question is, who should be leading these debates and decisions? So let's talk about CRISPR and what transpired in ELSI, ethical, legal, social implications related research since 2012. So in 2012, Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier, and others developed CRISPR. Around six years later, we, we have this CRISPR babies incident with a Chinese doctor, Dr. He. Could you talk about what occurred from 2012 to this incident with Dr. He? Yeah, and I think I should start with something that we've alluded to but not clearly defined, the difference between somatic cell interventions and germline interventions or germline effects. The ways in which gene addition and gene editing have generally been done in humans so far, with the probable exception of Dr. He's twins, addresses somatic cells. That is, you take a child or an adult already born and intervene with a genetic intervention on them in order to overcome whatever mutation is causing genetic disease. And that can actually be very effective. There are some versions of gene addition that have been approved in humans, and there are some trials treating adults with both zinc finger nucleases, and now there's a trial of treating sickle cell disease yeah. with CRISPR. But that doesn't provide a complete correction for everybody. It depends on the genetic defect. And so what happened after the development of CRISPR was that everybody started seeing, you know, how, how is this going to work? And discovered that one of the things that happens is that you're very likely to end up with what's called mosaicism. And you're clearly going to create, when your goal is somatic cell therapy, a patient or a patient subject, if it's still in research, whose cells are composed partly of cells with the new DNA that's been incorporated and partly of cells with the old DNA. And what you hope is that the effect of the new DNA will overcome that of the old DNA. And so they are by definition mosaics. And that's perfectly fine if it creates a substantial enough correction. But if you're talking about a very devastating genetic disease, first of all, you want to address it as early as possible, and then you want to make sure it gets into as many cells as possible. So people started working with, which you can actually do in the laboratory, you can work with embryos until they develop up to 14 days. Although in the US, federal money for that research is not available. But it can be done, and it's been done in other countries and so forth. And even when you start with an embryo that's more than a few days old, you may end up with a mosaic outcome. So people started saying, well, let's go back as far as we can. One of the risks then is that you are actually going to affect the germline because in a rapidly developing embryo, your goal is to avoid mosaicism. 
So you want to correct the genetics in as many cells as possible. And that includes cells that could end up being responsible for the creation of sperm or ova so that you would then not only correct the developing embryo, but that correction would be passed on to future generations. Now that has always been off the table in the area of gene addition because nobody really knew what the outcome would be. There have been studies in adult males using gene addition that have been at least temporarily halted because of the possibility that their sperm or their semen might be affected. And nobody quite knew what that meant and what to do about it. That, that happened in some hemophilia studies, and it has to do with the route of administration, and it has to do with where the gene targets are. So the idea was we don't know what's going to happen if this gets into the germline, so we won't do it at all. When we got to gene editing, people seemed to take a different viewpoint, saying, well, you know, this is a terrible genetic disease. You're correcting it at a very early stage. Isn't it a really good idea to actually correct it throughout the germline? Of course, we still don't know whether what actually happens in future generations would be the same correction. And we also have learned, and this is why base editing and prime editing came along, that even CRISPR, which is far easier to do than using zinc finger nucleases or talons, and is arguably more accurate and precise, still runs the risk of off-target mutations. So if everything doesn't go exactly where you want it to go, there could be no good outcome at all, and there could actually be bad outcomes. So people started saying, well, maybe germline effects are a good thing, but we really don't know what might happen with them. And I think a lot of my concern is how to think about this perception of germline effects are a good thing. And that leads to Dr. He. So Dr. He is a young Chinese scientist who is one of the people that China has been supporting very greatly. I forget there's a, there's a sort of a title for young up-and-coming scientists that's the Chinese equivalent of probably of the 30 under 30 that you see. So he was given a lot of support and really wanted to make a mark and started several companies and ended up as he explains it, recruiting Chinese couples who wanted to have children, but the man in each couple was HIV positive and the woman was not HIV positive. Now, I still don't fully understand how he described the study to his potential subjects. It seems as though it was misleading because if a discordant couple like that wants to have a child that's free of HIV, there are very easy and reliable techniques to wash the sperm because the sperm itself isn't the problem. It's the semen that's a problem. So it's very easy for such couples, if they use in vitro fertilization, to have children who are free of HIV. What he really wanted to do was to increase the resistance of embryos to HIV infection. So there is apparently a way to do that with a particular mutation, but it's not the only mutation that has anything to do with HIV susceptibility. 
And so rather than just ensuring that an embryo would be HIV-free, his goal was to enhance the embryo and therefore future child's ability to withstand HIV infection if exposed to it later in life. There are many scientific and ethical things wrong with that, but it put on center stage this question of actually doing gene editing in order to produce offspring, which no one had openly admitted to doing before. And it resulted in new calls for a moratorium and several international commissions to look further at the question of genome editing for future generations that would actually go into creating children. So Dr. Hu, some have speculated he's going for the Nobel Prize. I don't know if we, we should impute motivations to him. He did publish with some other authors a now-retracted paper in CRISPR journal, the, the journal dedicated to CRISPR. And, and it's interesting to read about his vision for germline gene editing. Obviously, what he did is objectionable to many, but I think his aims, at least as outlined in the paper, were pretty noble. He talked about the need for a clear vision of the future, succinctly stated in plain language. We, we need to lay out some core values to guide this technology. We need a clear social purpose to help families in need. Wealth should not be an impediment to health. We shouldn't fall prey to genetic essentialism. We should respect the child's autonomy. We shouldn't do enhancement. Maybe this is an enhancement, as you said. But if, if you had to speculate about Dr. Hu's motivations or, or why he did this, what would you say? I think that despite the fact that he actually had a lot of conversations with people who recognized the ethical issues and actually talked with him about ethics, uh, about the ethics of going forward, he didn't absorb that information in the way that the people he talked with had hoped. Perhaps he really thinks that he didn't violate those principles that he wrote about in that retracted article, but he did succumb to genetic essentialism and he did actually attempt an enhancement. And I'll talk about both of those separately. The reason it's an enhancement is that if he had not made that genetic alteration through CRISPR, which, by the way, was arguably unsuccessful in both babies, but without that genetic alteration, they would have been perfectly normal kids. Enhancing their ability to withstand HIV infection is simply an enhancement. And one of the really interesting things about the problem of enhancement is how do you distinguish between what's normal and what's an enhancement? We, we could talk for hours about that. But it was an enhancement. His goal was an enhancement. He wanted to make it harder for these two girls as they grew up to contract an HIV infection. That was his goal. There are lots of other ways to avoid contracting HIV, as we all know. But the genetic essentialism part is sort of related to that. What he said about genetic essentialism in that paper was really don't look at anybody who has had a genetic alteration as only being that genetic alteration. They're more than that. But genetic essentialism also means focusing on genes, you know, genes are us thinking that genetics actually define everything important about us. As we know, looking at history, we've gone through a whole bunch of phases in which the scientific community and the world at large thought that everything about us was defined in different ways. Before genes, it was hormones. 
you know, now since we know that genes aren't enough, we talk about the microbiome a lot. So we're always looking for that one thing that's going to define us, and that's essentialism. What Dr. Huss said about the reason for focusing on reducing the susceptibility to HIV infection was that having HIV infection is highly stigmatized in China. And so what he was actually doing was attempting to use a highly technological biotechnology, a scientific solution to a social problem. The problem of HIV stigma is not a scientific problem. It is a problem of how society regards people with an illness. The blame that we put on people saying it must have been your own fault, you know, that happens in very many aspects of all societies. And we all have a tendency to look for biotechnological solutions to social problems. I think that's actually a major problem in how we look at scientific advances. I think we have the idea that science is really clear, clean, and easy, and that's probably what Dr. He hoped for. Science can never operate on its own. It has a social purpose and a social goal, and so we have to look beyond just the technology to address the problems of health and science and society. And so I think he was guilty of the genetic essentialism that he was arguing in that now retracted paper should be avoided. He fell prey to this sort of Faustian hubris, not even considering that other people could think about it otherwise. Maybe he thought he had pretty noble intentions. Oh, I'm sure he did, yeah. But jumping the gun with the noblest of intentions doesn't always turn out well. Let's talk about alternatives to gene editing. You write in your paper, somatic cell genetic correction has been the goal of human genetic manipulation since its beginning. One risk, however, is mosaicism. Therefore, as you said, maybe we should look at early intervention. There are many ways to intervene in the human germline that do not involve CRISPR or other gene editing. So there's selective mating. You talk about the Orthodox Jewish community in Tay-Sachs. They screen for carriers, and if two parents are a carrier, they, they choose not to have children. There's a one out of four risk of having a child with Tay-Sachs. You also talk about assisted reproductive technologies like in vitro fertilization and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And, and so you pose this really interesting question. You say IVF and PGD are commonly used to select disease-free offspring. So are there any good reasons to even pursue genetic editing if, if these options are already on the table? And aside from these rare instances, one, you don't have a viable embryo. So should we even be pursuing the, this path of inquiry, or should we just focus on IVF? Well, yeah, I think one of the things that we are actually forgetting in this discussion about CRISPR, and the same would apply to base editing and prime editing, is that all of this is based on the use of assisted reproductive technologies to begin with. You can't do any of these technologies on an embryo unless you create an embryo in the laboratory. The other thing that I think we're forgetting is that there are many serious disorders that we know have genetic associations that we haven't identified the genes for. And so none of this works at all unless we first identify all of the genes that would merit avoidance or correction. 
And so there are a lot of people who are sort of getting ahead of themselves and thinking, oh, but what about this and what about this and what about this other condition? And we may not have even the ability to effectively test for the existence of the condition and its genetic associations, let alone identify the genes that are at issue. And when you just have one genetic correction to make or a small number of them, you can do it. But many conditions require knowing exactly which of any number of mutations are responsible for it, or there may be more than one. So it gets very complicated very quickly. But if you know that you can identify the gene at issue, then what you do is you create embryos in a laboratory setting, and then you test them with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. It is possible and it's reasonably safe to take one cell out of a developing embryo at a very, very early stage and test it to see if it contains the deleterious mutation or not. If it doesn't, then case closed. If it does, then you test the next embryo because it's very unusual to create just one. So you can select a healthy embryo rather than edit an embryo that has the condition. And because there are still unknowns about the complete effectiveness of, of this, um, we don't know if there would be any off-target mutations. So if you choose to correct an embryo rather than select a healthy embryo, well, then that embryo is going to grow up to be a research subject. And somebody is going to want to find out whether what would happen in the next generation is actually safe or not, in addition to finding out whether that person who is developed from the corrected embryo is healthy in, in all of the appropriate ways. So on the one hand, I actually think that it makes a lot more sense to let people know that IVF and PGD are part and parcel of what would be done, and they can sort of end the need for gene editing in most cases, because if you decide to do the edit, then you have to do PGD again after you've done the edit to make sure that it actually worked before you go on. So why not just focus on assisted reproductive technologies? Well, there are some reasons why people don't routinely use IVF and PGD in just exactly that way. They're expensive, they're often not covered by insurance, and it's an under-regulated area. And that's one of the problems, is you're building this fantastic new edifice of wonderful biotechnology on top of a system that when you want it to move from the research arena into treatment, you're still going to have an area that's largely unregulated, that's expensive, that's not available to everybody, not often covered by insurance, and that is a problem. Now, there are people who have responded to those arguments by identifying more reasons for actually using editing than I had previously thought about. George Daly, who's uh, extremely thoughtful, has argued that there is so much infertility that gene editing could be necessary both to increase fertility in couples who are using assisted reproductive technologies and to deal with the fact that they may not be able to produce very many embryos. On the other hand, 
Kathy Nyakan, who is an American researcher working in the UK, is using gene editing in laboratory settings to learn more about infertility and find other ways to think about it without simply going to the, well, yes, we, we ought to go right into gene editing for the purpose of producing offspring. So there's still a lot to be learned, and there's still the possibility of using IVF and PGD in a productive way with creation of more than one embryo. You know, there are people like Hank Greeley from Stanford who has said that he sees a future in which sex and reproduction are completely separated because everybody should actually be using IVF and PGD to have healthy kids. I think we're pretty far from that, but we need more attention to the assisted reproduction industry in order to address some of these questions. And the issues even go beyond that, but I think one place to start really is to look at the role of assisted reproduction and the technologies that it uses and look at how they relate to these novel genetic technologies and just pay more attention to that. You make a really good, yet it should be obvious point that to actually do germline editing and for it to have an effect and to produce actual people, you have to do IVF. But as you say, it's prohibitively expensive for many people I think there are about 250,000 cycles of, of IVF done per year in the U.S., but, but it's really the, the Wild West out there. There's not a whole lot of regulation. So in 78, Edwards and Steptoe developed it, but the U.S. has never established any overarching regulation. There was a Consumer Protection Act, the Wyden Act, that forced private IVF clinics to disclose their success rates. But beyond that, it's, it really is the Wild West. So let's move on from IVF and talk about enhancement again. So you write, people often just immediately think about gene editing without thinking about how to actually implement it and uh, produce human beings. And this sort of elision of embryo selection as an alternative option suggests that we're so eager to, to start engineering uh, Ubermension, right? So does our eagerness to, to edit everyone betray a sort of desire for designer babies? And should we object to that? Should we slow down? Well, if you think about the fact that in most situations there are alternatives to gene editing, whether it's using IVF and PGD without editing or even sort of the things that people did to try to have the healthiest possible babies before we had all these technologies at all, if you look at the fact that there are alternatives, then where I think you end up is well, is what people really think these new technologies are for is really enhancement. Because the one thing that you cannot achieve by merely selecting a healthy embryo is enhancement, genetic enhancement, that is. And, and, and the argument about enhancement has always been, well, people try to enhance their kids in all sorts of ways. And even adults try to enhance themselves. I mean, didn't Tiger Woods actually have LASIK surgery to alter his vision in a way that would make it easier for him to hit a long golf ball or something? People take ADHD drugs when they don't have ADHD because they think it allows them to perform better on tests, etc. All kinds of things. So, so people are trying to enhance themselves all the time, you know, even if it's as simple as, well, I'm going to enhance myself by learning to play the piano, right? 
Um, so there are all kinds of things that one can do. Genetic enhancement is, according to the people who make these arguments, just another means of enhancement. And yet, if you say that, gee, you can, you can have perfectly healthy people without using gene editing, well, but you can actually use those technologies to not merely remove a deleterious gene, but to insert a gene that you think will be beneficial. In fact, recently, I read something in just an online news service about a man who has extreme sensitivity to sunlight, who has been begging people to CRISPR him in order to insert some non-human genes that he thinks would make it possible for him to go out in the daytime without extreme sunblock and carrying an umbrella. Now, for him, that would be a treatment, but it shows the, the ways people are thinking about some of the enhancements that might be possible. And so if enhancement is really the goal of these biotechnologies because you can't achieve that without these biotechnologies, then we have to talk about whether enhancement is a good thing or a bad thing and what counts as an enhancement, which can be very difficult to decide, and then think about how we collectively want to regard what happens to individuals and what happens to the human species. So if we just look at genetic enhancement as a, a subset of all enhancement, you pose this interesting question, is genetic enhancement different in kind than all other forms of enhancement? Is editing one's genetic code different than wearing glasses for myopia or taking ADHD drugs to improve attention for a test? So some might say, okay, the effects of genetic enhancement are permanent, they're passed down among the generations. So do you think it's different in kind from, from other forms of enhancement? I don't necessarily think it's different in kind, but I think it's certainly different in degree. But it raises much more clearly some of the questions that have always been kicking around about enhancement. And that has to do with whether an enhancement is an intrinsic good or a positional good. Take height, for example. If a couple wants to have a child that's taller than either of them, that's very unlikely to happen just by selecting a healthy embryo. But suppose you could insert genes from a basketball player or tweak the height gene or something. I don't even know how you would begin to do it because that's a characteristic that probably has a lot of genetic and non-genetic associations. But suppose you could reliably do something to an embryo to make it taller. Would that be an inherently good thing, or would it be just good if you were taller than other people and got the advantage of being taller? It depends on how you're thinking about what that enhancement means. It depends on choices available to other people. So what we want, if we're being responsible about thinking about enhancement at all, is to be able to argue that something that is an enhancement is intrinsically good, rather than something that is good only because it gives the enhanced person an advantage over other people. Partly because that doesn't seem like a fair way to think about things, and partly because what that does is it just creates an escalation of enhancements. So first there's that, 
And then we have to think about what would count as an intrinsically good enhancement and how that should play out overall, because then you get to questions about who gets to decide what's intrinsically good, how should that be available. And again, you also get to questions about whether we then become tempted to use science to address more complex problems. For instance, there was a power failure in Chicago a number of years ago, and the result was that a lot of elderly, low-income people died because they lived in places where they couldn't open the windows and their upper floor apartments got too hot and people just were not able to assist them properly. And of course, I won't be able to remember. Somebody wrote a book about that problem and looked at all the kind of neighborhood solutions that could be in place to address something like that. But, you know, you might say, wow, it would be really easier if we could just go forth enhancing embryos so that they can better withstand heat. I mean, look, we've got climate change happening. We could do that. You know, let's make it, let's make it easier, especially for people as they age and their temperature regulatory mechanism kind of f slows down. Let's figure out how to engineer them so that they can withstand heat better. Might be a great idea. Is it as good an idea as figuring out other ways to address a problem like that or of, you know, coping with climate change? Well, once again, it's something that we look to science and think, wow, this is going to give us a solution to a complicated social problem. We wouldn't have to worry as much about being neighborly if we didn't have to worry that some person might actually not be able to cope with a power failure because of the heat. It's a kind of a silly example, maybe, but it shows how characterizing something as an enhancement and at what level you're going to think about it as an enhancement is a much more complicated issue than we are tending to think about it right now. Yeah, people in evolutionary biology will be well aware of this, that the fitness of a phenotype depends on the environment oftentimes, and there can be interesting interaction effects. So these heat-resistant individuals might not do so well in, a, in another ice age if it were to come about. I, I want to return to your point about positional goods. So I think an interesting analogy is from the world of higher education. To some people like Brian Kaplan argue that education is mostly about signaling, not about acquiring re real skills that one applies in their job. I'll stay agnostic about that. But if this is true, then the increase in enrollment in higher education has just been a, a massive signal inflation force in that your once useful positional good of a high school diploma now has a lot less signaling value to, to potential employers. Similarly, as you say about height, and I talked to Eric Jungst about this, it's only useful insofar as it's comparatively useful. You're taller than the next guy, and therefore you earn more, for example which the data show. But in and of itself, it's actually slightly maladaptive. Taller people have shorter lifespans. So should we go about selecting for, for, for taller children? Maybe not, because it would create these negative externalities. And there's some really interesting research, actually, on the gains to be had from doing IVF and PGD in a screening for polygenic traits like height. And with our current genetic predictors, the best you can get is around three centimeters or, or so, because our predictors are pretty poor at this point but that's something we could potentially do. But let's return to this point about intrinsic goods and addressing social problems. Clearly, in the, in the case of the elderly folks in Chicago, 
there's an easy intervention, maybe not so easy, but a, a simple intervention to prevent this from happening, at least preventing the proximal cause. The question is, can we effectively intervene to address the distal causes of social inequality, wealth inequality? Are you hopeful about addressing those issues? Well, I don't want to say that we shouldn't look to biotechnology at all because we need to address some intractable social problems. What worries me is what I learned from actually a graduate student here in sustainability called path preclusion, which is if you find a technological solution, you go down that path to the preclusion of following other paths. What I think is that I wouldn't want to prevent people from thinking that they, they ought to give their children competitive enhancements. But I think we need to think far more broadly about having more conversations about what constitutes success in our society and why we view that as successful and what do we owe each other in terms of addressing some of the societal problems that give rise to differential advantages. I think we need to pursue all of those. So I'm not going to be a purist and say, well, we can't sully the human genetic inheritance by doing any of this. But I think it ought to be forcing us into some extremely difficult conversations about all of the issues that we might think we can avoid by looking at biotechnological solutions. Because, for instance, if everybody said, oh, wow, gee, we didn't realize that assisted reproductive technologies were such a problem. Well, let's, let's regulate the field and make sure it's safe, and let, let, let's just make sure that everybody's insurance covers assisted reproduction so they can all have healthy children. The issue might go even beyond providing equitable access to even that level of biotechnology. It might go beyond that. It might require us to think about stigma and discrimination in society and lots of other choices that we make. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I hope that thinking about gene editing can make us sort of think more and more broadly about the larger questions raised by a, a very powerful biotechnology like this that we don't fully understand. It's not just all about what the benefits and harms are, but it's about how we reflect on how it fits in with our society and the different pathways that are necessarily complementary to using it. So one such difficult conversation that, that we could have would be about intelligence, for example. Some might say intelligence constitutes an intrinsic good and that it, it leads to improved technologies that, that increase our quality of life. Uh, on the individual level, it's associated with a, a whole host of positive outcomes, better health, less smoking, less out-of-wedlock birth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we also know that it's... So, so I'm going to try to tread carefully here. In behavioral genetics, they talk about heritability of a trait, which is how much of the variance in a trait is caused by genes. But but the heritability of intelligence in developed countries is upwards of 50-60%. So the question is, given that, and given that we have a very poor track record of finding interventions to increase people's intelligence, what do we do then, right? It, it's a very bleak situation to be in. 
we, we'd like to environmentally in, intervene to, to help people with this key determinant of professional and social and life success in general. Should, should we say we shouldn't place such an emphasis on, on intelligence and create a society that, that that's good for anyone, no, no matter how, how smart they are? Or should we just throw up our hands? Okay, well, I'm going to go right back to the root of what you're saying and ask you, well, how do we define intelligence? Are we talking about an IQ test? Are we talking about the ability to surpass your parents' level of education and economic achievement, um, which is the way some people have defined it? Is it the ability to get into Harvard? What we mean by intelligence is an open question. Generally speaking, I think we're, we don't mean just IQ score. But, you know, years ago, Charlie McCarthy, the wonderful scholar and federal officer who was the first person who directed the Office for Protection from Research Risks and sort of presided over the, um, the first iteration of the um, human subjects regulations called the Common Rule, many years ago he said, intelligence? Why would people think that having higher intelligence was necessarily a good thing because of all the different ways you can use it? So there's that to begin with. But the kinds of measures that we use for intelligence have a great deal to do with social success and social positioning. They have to do with where you were born and how you were raised and what your social connections are, your social capital, as it were. So how your intelligence gets recognized and measured is a feature of a much more complicated set of issues than just what might be a measure of your genetic intelligence. So while I can imagine many people seeing value in increasing the intellectual capacity of most offspring, I think that it would be meaningless to do that without looking at everything else that goes into creating responsible members of society, and that includes things beyond IQ-type intelligence. I mean, people talk about emotional intelligence. There are lots of different ways of measuring the components of intelligence that may not be as readily identifiable as, well, what can we do to increase your IQ? There are also so many things that we are learning more and more that we're failing at in terms of education and opportunity. You alluded earlier to the value of an advanced degree as being related more to say, sort of the cachet that it brings to have it than to what you actually learn. And recently with all the, the scandals about college admissions with I think if I'm remembering the statistic correctly, I read something that said that 47% of the admissions to Harvard were legacy admissions. That is admissions of people whose parents had or some other relatives had actually been to Harvard, which seems unrelated to your capacity to excel in the work that you do. And I, I personally think that one of the skills that we neglect in a lot of education, in part because of our science focus, 
is teaching people how to be good critical thinkers and critically reflect on the issues that they're learning about. Learning is, is increasingly looked at as a unidirectional model rather than something that should increase the learner's capacity to learn new things and question things and take a very different role in society than simply doing what you've been told you should do. So I think there are a lot of ways to think much more broadly about intelligence and what it means and what its role should be in our society, even if we do decide that it would be a good thing to figure out how to increase people's intellectual capacities. To talk a bit about this psychological construct of intelligence briefly, if you take a battery of any, any sort of tests from reaction time to remembering strings of digits to vo vocabulary, there emerges from factor analysis this principal component that, that explains a bunch of the variance in these test scores. So people who do well on one test score tend to do well on another, and we call this trait fluid intelligence, G. It's associated with things we value, like, like SAT score and ACT score, but, but as you point out, should we, should we really be valuing those things? Or, or will that sort of thinking just lead to this needless, meritocratic pursuit of, as you say, the cachet of these titles, Harvard grad, PhD? But I'm going to push back a bit on what you say, and I, I do think intelligence is a, a good in and of itself. So as it's defined psychology, it's the, the ability to solve novel problems, to identify patterns. Is it the same thing as critical thinking? No. The question is, can we, can we teach those sorts of skills? Cognitive reflection, critical thinking. And so I'd say I think intelligence is a prerequisite for developing those sorts of skills. It's the, the meta skill that enables you to, to learn other, other skills, and therefore maybe we, we should value it. Okay, I'm not going to disagree. I think that it's very possible to describe intelligence as an intrinsic good rather than a positional good alone. I guess my question is, how do you make sure that it's a good? And that has to do with developing not only critical thinking skills, but also ensuring that people can grow and develop in a society that values certain kinds of contributions to society. Otherwise, you know, you run the risk of ending up with some extremely clever criminals and antisocial behavior, right? So you can't simply focus on intelligence and assume that it's going to come out well. You have to, again, surround it with a social fabric that promotes the well-being of everybody. And that's another instance where we need to worry about path preclusion. We have to keep working on making sure that everybody, whether their intelligence is enhanced or not, has access to those things that make for a good life and is permitted to develop the skills that allow for critical thinking, critical reflection, and all the other goods that we value in society. And we don't have enough conversation about some very basic things like that. For instance, you know, at this point, in my own area of looking at health-related issues, I think that many people have forgotten that the concept of insurance is a concept, to some extent, of shared responsibility. People are more likely to look at health insurance as something that, well, I'm, it's my money, 
and it's about my health and it doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. So, you know, we have, we have a very highly developed view of autonomy in American society, which isn't bad in and of itself, but when it neglects concepts of community and neglects to remind us all that we all depend on things provided to us by others and on things that we believe should be provided to us by government and that that's what we pay taxes for and things like that, then we end up with an atomistic view that sort of misses a lot of the point. And so I think that there are some things that we, we have taken for granted in the past that need more conversation now, especially as we get better and better biotechnological tools. We need to make sure that we keep talking about the tools we need to make a good society in which biotechnology can develop in a productive way. That, that's a very good point. As you said before, there are more foundational questions about well, what does it mean to live a good life? How, how do we ensure that for most, if not all, people that are lurking in the background of these biotech conversations? And I think insurance actually is a very interesting question in this regard. So under the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, GINA, health insurers aren't allowed to deny someone insurance eligibility if they have genetic predisposition towards a disease. And so... This seems like a very good thing. These people who did not choose to have a genetic disease can't be denied insurance, and they're able to participate in, as you say, this sort of risk dispersal that, that insurance does. However, I, I don't know if the, the same sort of individual protections are going to be had for, for life insurance or, or other forms of insurance. So maybe we do need some sort of consumer protection in, in, in that arena. As we learn more about the, the genetic and social determinants of health and uh, wealth and, and all these other things. Well, yeah, GINA applies to health insurance, and it does not apply to long-term care or any other circumstance outside of the employment context or health insurance. And so the concern about the increasing cost of dealing with life. I mean, everybody's costs of dealing with life are increased whether or not they are genetically predisposed to anything. And of course, we're all genetically predisposed to something, but it might not be genetic at all. You could get in a car accident tomorrow and end up in great need because we haven't faced the fact that health costs are spiraling out of control, nor have we faced the reality that Regardless of all of these wonderful genetic technologies, the gap between those who have plenty and those who don't have enough to meet any social needs is increasing enormously. And it's certainly the case that in medical education, you know, I, one of the things I do is teach medical students, and medical students are being taught things that they need to know about how life experiences affect health and health affects life experiences and about needs that are not medical needs that when they go unmet, health can suffer. So medical students are also facing this problem of the fact that the world of health is separated from the communities in which people live and there's not enough connection between 
healthcare and science and all of the other services that people need and benefit from. So we have to reforge some connections that have gotten very much separated in order to help everybody to live better lives. One such need that, that all humans have is community and connection. The, the, the sociologist Robert Putnam wrote this book called Bowling Alone, talking about the breakdown of, of social ties and communities. Uh, people don't spend time with each other. We, we, we live in these increasingly atomized houses or apartments. And this doesn't seem like a, a problem that we could address through the, the biotechnological route, right? The, 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 there's a deeper cause that, that needs to be addressed. And I, like you're saying, I think that could be said for many of these other issues we, we've been discussing. You can't pathologize certain behaviors or, or outcomes w without looking at the, the, the root cause. Well, yeah, and your mention of bowling alone shows that this trend is of long duration, but it's certainly been exacerbated by the development of technologies that allow people to spend all their time on the internet and their smartphones, right? And... I saw a headline just the other day, but who has time to read everything that you scroll through on your phone, but a headline saying that there's beginning to be some evidence that using these technologies like smartphones for very young kids actually has an effect on attention span. So it's not only that we're focusing too much on technology and not on everything else. There is the possibility of, again, effects that we haven't necessarily recognized that might be adverse from some of the technologies that we're pursuing. You know, life is really much more complicated than we like to think it is. And I guess, you know, my interest in, in gene editing and the work of novel biotechnologies and the work that they do in our society and how they get developed is really about saying, you know, this really is more complicated and it doesn't hurt to think about those things as early as possible because if the technology moves forward successfully, then we'll be in a better position to help it move forward successfully. And if it doesn't move forward successfully, then we'll be in a better position to evaluate the next thing that comes along, rather than just simply continuing to repeat the cycle of, oh, this is the thing that's going to answer all of our questions, and then finding out that it doesn't quite, and going around searching for the next thing that's going to answer all of our questions. You know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about in the healthcare context is the role of uncertainty, because nobody likes uncertainty. But especially in healthcare, we can get in deep trouble if we don't increase our comfort level with uncertainty because nothing is 100% sure to always happen and to always work properly. So the job of increasing comfort with uncertainty is a very complicated one because it's not just a little brain tweak. It's can you live with uncertainty because you've learned how to deal with both the good things and the bad things that happen in your life. So again, it's about the social fabric that we acknowledge ourselves as creating and sustaining. And we simply don't think about those things often enough. We deal with uncertainty every day, and yet we're made profoundly uncomfortable by it. And that's never going to go away. But if we get better about dealing with it, then we're likely to get better about thinking about all of these novel biotechnologies like gene editing. It's not a sure thing. Let's start being prepared for the imperfections that we find. 
and deal with the imperfections in all of us and in everything around us in order to improve them. General statistical illiteracy is uh, a huge problem, which encompasses the ability to deal with uncertainty, though that's probably a, a bigger issue that subsumes statistical thinking, being able to regulate your yourself and deal with your actions and be, being an agent in this world are, are, are much bigger issues. But it's more interesting than that in some ways, because even people who are statistically literate, or even the person whose doctor is really good at explaining stuff so that you don't have to immediately be able to translate a 75% probability into whatever, even that person is going to say, okay, doc, you're telling me that the procedure you're recommending for me has a 75% chance of completely curing my condition. But I don't know what that means for me, because for me, it's either going to work or not. Isn't that a 50-50 chance? You know, so, so part of the issue is understanding the relationship between the numbers that apply to groups of people, which is the way we talk about what works and doesn't work in healthcare contexts, and what actually applies to an individual. So the best thing that doctor can do is not go back to say, no, 75% chance means this, but to say, yeah, that is the way it affects you. It's not really 50-50, but it's going to work for you or not. What I think is most likely to happen for you is that it will work for you, but here's what I promise you. No matter what happens, I'll be there with you, and I'll help you through your recovery period no matter what the outcome is. And that's a very, very basic role of the healthcare provider-patient relationship that can easily get obscured by looking at the need for technologies that everybody is sure is going to be the next best thing. You know, every time a news article comes out about something like CRISPR or prime editing, somebody is going to say, oh, that's the thing that I need, and is going to make a phone call to somebody saying, you know, doctor, how can you get me this prime editing? Because I'm sure that's what's going to help me, or I'm sure that's what's going to help my child. We immediately look to those kinds of solutions, and that's perfectly understandable and perfectly natural. And what everybody needs to do is to find solutions that are broader than that. Well, you know, it's not ready to go into humans yet, but here's what we can do for you instead right now. And that involves making some very hard decisions about what our society should make available to people who aren't in perfect health, as none of us are. We're all going one place. On that cheery note, let's talk about one more issue, regulation and directing these technologies. So following the, the CRISPR baby fiasco, there were a host of proposals put out by scientific societies, famous scientists. So uh, a group led by Eric Lander said there should be a moratorium on clinical germline editing so that a regulatory framework, an international one, can be established. And then we'll, we'll, we'll lift this moratorium and countries can do their own policies. Do you think, given the incentives on the international level, w would enforcing a moratorium like this even be feasible? 
So certain countries might be more gung-ho and optimistic about these technologies and willing to take on more risk. Others might be more conservative. So, so is this even feasible? That's a really difficult question to answer, and there's at least two international commissions trying to figure that out right now. But I think one of the key things to think about is that in order for anything like this to go forward internationally, to develop this still really, really nascent technology so that it can have clinical applications. It's no different, really, from the global problem of stem cell clinics that are not regulated and that may or may not be providing services that should be provided. You know, there's such a thing as medical tourism, obviously. There's also something that I think it was Glenn Cohen who called it circumvention tourism, not that potential patients go elsewhere to get a technology that they can't get at home, but that the scientists and healthcare providers who want to make that technology available go to where they can make it available if they can't make it available at home. So we're not going to get past those things. What we need to do is develop and promulgate standards of responsible science and responsible medicine globally and figure out how to make local enforcement possible because, you know, nobody sits down, no responsible person sits down and says, I want to exploit vulnerable patients. So if we have standards everywhere for safety they can be enforced at local levels. And the other thing we really have to do is make sure that the information that's provided to potential research subjects, potential patients, is accurate and complete. For instance, recently the International Society for Stem Cell Research promulgated a, a standard, a professional standard for informed consent for use in stem cell interventions that are provided outside of the context of research. And their goal in doing that was to set an international standard for responsible transmission of information. And if you tell people the truth and you give them complete information, then they should be allowed to make decisions if it's within the framework of providing a technology that is reasonably safe and reasonably likely to be effective. And we could end up there with gene editing at a future time. I think we're very far away from that. And I still do believe that we have many better lower tech, although not nothing no tech, we have very many better lower tech solutions and we need to have that conversation. But I think we could end up with better international thinking about all of this because everybody does want to protect vulnerable patients from being exploited by people who only want to increase their media profile or only want to exploit them financially. So I think, I think we can do a lot better and I think there are ways to get there. It's not going to be easy. So the question then becomes, what, what if there are individual or, or collective bad actors who get this technology and use it for ill? Two parts to this question. One, the, the, the philosopher Nick Bostrom talks about 
pulling technological balls from an urn. Some are relatively benign or beneficial, like vaccines. Other are double-edged sword, like nuclear technology. And some could just be the, the very worst. It's a species ending, an existential threat to humanity. Do you think germline gene editing could constitute that sort of risk? So it's all, I'll, I'll let you answer that. I don't think so. I think the worst possible outcome would be what's been called in other contexts a slow-motion disaster. Because humans simply don't reproduce fast enough to actually create a disaster. But what could happen in a worst-case scenario was that we would end up with some very difficult circumstances where we would have to forbid some people from reproducing because they might cause harm to their offspring. And that's not a place where we want to be because that smacks of old-style eugenics, even if our science knowledge is better. That would be a really problematic outcome. But I don't think that we really run the risk of sort of somehow sullying the human genetic inheritance. That's really different from the related concept of gene drives, which is intended to affect species who reproduce a lot faster than humans do. We could still wreck the environment with gene drives if we're not really careful, but I don't think we have that capacity with just gene editing. I agree. I don't think human germline gene editing is... Uh, I, I, I don't want to blithely say that it's nothing to be concerned about, but, but I do think it's dwarfed by gene drives, engineered bioweapons, things that, that we certainly need to be talking about and regulating. So one more question about enhancement. Let's suppose we live in a world decades down the road where IVF and PGD are free for everyone, CRISPR or some descendant of that technology is in wide use, do you think we'll reach this equilibrium where everyone is just choosing to enhance, sort of going this transhumanist route? Maybe we'll be using artificial gestational surrogates. Do you think that, one, is it is it technologically feasible? Two, do you think the, the incentives are going to push us in that direction, or is that just absurd? Well, I'm a science fiction fan, and I've read a lot of science fiction that you could characterize as envisioning a world where everybody can enhance themselves in a variety of ways. And the result is that people enhance themselves in a variety of ways. It's never that everybody decides they want their kids to be blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and six feet tall, and then we back ourselves into a corner. So I think that it's possible to imagine genetic enhancement along with a lot of the other things that we do as being non-problematic, but it's also the case, you know, if we ever get there, which is a very long way off if we do get there. But the other thing that people have talked about for a long time now, and that is still sort of on the table, is the idea of moral enhancement. The idea of moral enhancement is a really interesting one, because if we started talking about that, then it might make it easier for us to get into some of these conversations that we're not having because physiological enhancements or intellectual enhancements are sort of, we can wrap our heads around that. But figuring out what a moral enhancement would be that would be worthwhile 
is an extremely interesting proposition. And some of the people who are transhumanists have, have talked a lot about moral enhancement and whether it's desirable or not. Even just imagining, okay, what would be a moral enhancement that everybody should share? And what would be the consequences if it was something that not everybody shared? And how do we get around the fact that culturally our moral beliefs may differ from those of other cultures? How do we address what our human heritage is together when we come from so many different cultural and moral systems? Would just be a really interesting conversation to start, I think. Yeah, well, I, I think we have about 15 minutes. If, if you want to get into that a bit, we, we, we could, if you're willing. Well, the way I think about moral enhancement is informed by one of the very first students who graduated from our bioethics master's program, because he wrote his thesis about moral enhancement, and this was way before anybody had envisioned gene editing. And what he wrote about as a possible way of thinking about moral enhancement was, you know, not to, well, I'm not even sure how else you would define moral enhancement, but, but he talked about moral enhancement as increasing the human capacity to have and maintain lasting effects from entheogenic experiences. And if you think about all of the stuff that's come out lately about the use of hallucinogens therapeutically. Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Yeah, yeah. And the people who write about ayahuasca and what they learn from that and so forth. The idea behind an entheogenic experience as I understand it anyway, is that it enables you to more fully recognize and appreciate your connection with other people and may actually change not only your mindset, but your behavior in terms of contributing to your community and recognizing that we owe some things to each other in addition to simply owing things to ourselves. And that sounds like something that could be characterized as a moral enhancement, at least in modern American society, where we do tend to be fragmented and focused on our own autonomy and our own pursuits and our, what we're reading on our smartphones. It's not clear that it would always be a moral enhancement because there are some societies that are more oriented towards solidarity. There are some societies that may prioritize the worth of the community over the worth of the individual. So there are different balances everywhere. So what we decide moral enhancement should be and whether the same theory of moral enhancement should apply to everybody is, again, a, a, an extremely interesting question. Yeah, just to riff on that point a bit. So Michael Pollan wrote this book, How to Change Your Mind, Recently, Johns Hopkins was donated a large sum of money to open up a center to study the beneficial effects of psychedelics because there are some promising initial results for uh, treating PTSD, for treating survivors of sexual assault, and people report just uh, taking psychedelics on their own, these, these pro-social positive experiences of ego dissolution, feeling a oneness with everything that, that can have lasting impacts on our, our personality. So I think Brian Earp at uh, Yale, he, he's written about, for example, I think using nasally ingested vasopressin 
maybe is oxytocin, is, is a means of increasing in-group affinity, which is an interesting example. I think they later found out that vasopressin increases in-group affinity, but it also makes people more exclusionary. So, so it's a very fine balance with these things. But, but it's certainly something to be examining. I mean, the, the question is, what, what direction do we want to go in? Well, yeah, the, the in-group, out-group problem is pervasive, for sure. The other way that psychedelics have been very useful, properly dealt with, is in end-stage cancer patients who are having enormous anxiety about their impending death. And that raises sort of another question, because I, 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 re I referenced the, um, the, the folks who are interested in designer babies and enhancement of all sorts. They're also the folks who would like to expand the human lifespan enormously and basically overcome death through biotechnological means. And so they might not regard it as a good thing that people become better able to face death because they view death as something to overcome. So that raises the question of maybe the enhancement that everybody would really like to see is I'd like to live a lot longer in a healthy state. So expanding um, the human lifespan and expanding the human health span is something that people are, are, are working toward in a lot of different ways. And that's something else that we need to think about. Is that an appropriate goal for the human species? How does it fit with, again, the concerns about wealthy people in wealthy nations having access to a highly extended lifespan versus poorer people in poorer nations not having that access? What does it say, again, you know, science fiction has been writing about this for a very long time, what does it say about our relationship to our environment and to the planet? So even these questions about what counts as a moral enhancement and what counts as an enhancement that we should value and how, how should we think about them goes back to some very root questions about the relationship of humans to other species and to just the rest of the world. And those are questions that we are continually pushing the boundaries of in many different ways and we have throughout human history but we haven't had good conversations about them in many ways. So, you know, once again, it just gets back to let's start thinking about things that are really hard to think about because they're not going to go away just because we don't think about them. In the transhumanist vein, there are some that talk about wireheading, uh, like David Pierce. He's written about eliminating human suffering in total in wireheading being trying to engender these positive experiences and, and to lift the, the general valence of our experience out of the, 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 the negative zone. Who knows if this is possible? Is it even a good goal? This, along with life extension, pe people are considering and, and thinking about. One question I have, though, is, you know, at bottom, what, what's the purpose of it all? Are, are, we, are we just replication maximizers that are pushing our own buttons without really knowing why we're doing that? And I think those, those sorts of existential questions are insoluble. I don't think we'll ever solve them. But, but like you said, it's good to talk about them. I agree completely. Today I've been speaking with Nancy King. Nancy, thank you very much. Thank you.